I think one of the things that may sound obvious, but I'm just gonna say it out loud, is that your primary job in residency training is to learn and excel clinically. Like, so your primary job is to learn the clinical thing that you came to learn how to do and to be able to practice and then execute and become expert in that area. And literally everything else comes second. And so sometimes with the focus on wanting to do subspecialty or the focus on academics or really anything else, I see trainees can get caught up in all the extracurriculars and think that the clinical part is just happening by default because they're showing up to work every day. But by far, more than anything else, what's gonna have you have the support of your program for whatever you wanna do next, getting an academic job straight out or doing fellowship is being clinically excellent. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Hey there, and welcome to the IMG Residency Match Podcast. You're in the right place if you're an ambitious international medical graduate who wants insider strategies and inspiration to help you match into residency. I'm your host, Shauna K. Lister. I've been an admission consultant and writing coach for 12 years, and for the last seven years, I've helped IMGs create residency applications that help them get multiple interviews, match, and create the medical career they want. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of the IMG Residency Match podcast. We are getting into how to create and crush a career in academic medicine today. And to help us, we are joined by Dr. Kemi Dole, could not find anyone better. So Dr. Dole is a gynecologic oncologist, and that means that she does surgery and administers chemotherapy to people with cancers of the female reproductive tract. She has also served on residency selection committee, so she has valuable insights to share with IMGs who are applying to the match. When she's not caring for her patients or conducting her health services research, Dr. Dole works as an academic coach. She helps women of color to secure research grants doing work that they love. In the episode, we get into, you know, how Dr. Dole's early environment really shaped her career choice. She has a very, very cute story about you know how that came to be so how her early environment shaped her career choice the strengths and weaknesses that she sees IMGs bring to the table that she has seen when she has worked on selection committees we also talk about why she decided to do four years of fellowship training instead of three even after having completed four years of college four years of medical school and four years of residency training so that's a total of 16 years of training, but she never felt like she was delaying her life along the way, and we're going to talk about why she didn't feel like her life was on hold. We also get into why Dr. Dole is so very passionate about academic coaching and how you can use your time in residency training to prepare for a successful career in academic medicine. So you're here on a podcast about international medical graduates in the U.S. medical system. And so perhaps you could start by explaining to us your connection to medicine. Mm, Yes. So I'm an MD. So I'm a U.S. trained physician. And uh, and then I guess, interestingly enough, my father, who I'm I'm estranged from, but he was an international medical graduate who came to the U.S. after training and everything. So I, I grew up around a lot of international medical graduates in that sense. 
So would you say that you found medicine or medicine found you? I think medicine found me because I remember being four or five and thinking that like growing up and getting a job was becoming a doctor or a nurse because my mom was a nurse. So like, I just remember early on just thinking that like, that is what everybody did, you know? And then, you know, you oh, learn wow. like, oh, there are all sorts of jobs in the world. So I have to say <laughs> that it was, it's just been a long time that I've said, oh, I want to be a doctor. And I imagine that's because I was surrounded in some sense. Um, but I did go through a process where I did a different undergraduate degree in biomedical engineering. And, and I, you know, did some public health training. And so I, I, I went through a period of we're figuring out, okay, I really do want to be a physician though. So in that sense, I do feel like it was purposeful. That's really interesting. What were the things that you saw in your house? Did you just see them coming from work? And so you thought, well, everybody must do this work? Yes. Like I would, so for example, like this is like a very specific example. So my mother was a labor and delivery nurse and she would work nights a lot. And so I remember, you know, we would have appointments to get my hair braided in the morning. So I remember I would just go with her to work in the night and stay in one of like the rooms that like were unused, you know, and just like be around the nurses, nurses station, everything. And then in the morning, she would just like take me to get my hair braided. So I just mean in that sense, I was just in the healthcare environments so much Mm. that it was very normal to me. It wasn't this like foreign concept. And so then when it came for you to decide what kind of medicine you were going to practice, why did you decide on being in academic medicine? Oh, yes. So in my residency program, I was in a program where we had both uh, attendings that were in private practice and in academics. And so I really got to see what the different career paths look like. And I think when I went in, I wasn't certain which way I was going to go. But in it was almost like the same, re- the same thing that drove me to OBGYN, which is that the variety in what the practice was, you know, from counseling to surgery, et cetera. It's the same thing that drove me to academics, which is I was like, mm-hmm. oh, I really like clinical care, but I love that there's a research component, there's education, there's teaching, you know, leadership opportunities. Like I liked that variety within. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've thought about this before too. And I think it kind of boils down to feeling like I had something to offer that I wanted to work towards that was more than the one-on-one patient experience. Like that mm-hmm. was really important, but also I wanted to be able to work like one to many, you know, mm-hmm. through contributions and teaching and all of that. So it became fairly clear not too long into my residency that I was going to do academics. Okay. So one to many, I like that. It's reminding me of business, <laughs> which we're going to get to yes. later. <laughs> and so you've spent some time coming on different residency selection committees. And so mm-hmm. I wanted to know if those were at places, and you don't have to name the institutions, but if those were places mm-hmm. that one could consider IMG friendly and that they regularly take IMG residents, or were they just sort of giving these interviews as courtesy interviews? So the place that was most IMG friendly that I have been at was the place where I was a resident. And so I was not as deeply involved with residency selection. You know, we we have some input, but not as much, but I'll speak from that perspective. And then I've absolutely been at institutions where they're not really open to IMG. And some of that is related to like state funding, like they're funded to train students from the state, that kind of thing. I would say that Yeah, so I definitely have seen the IMG friendly space. And then I had co-residents 
you know, who are IMGs. I mean, I have experienced the, I have experienced an IMG friendly place that is seeking IMG residents as part of an effort to make sure they have a diverse class of trainees because they understand that different perspectives really builds better clinical care models. Mm -hmm. And then I've also been at places where they are open to IMG interviews. Is that, I think, how they would say it, but I would say it's, it's harder to match because of perceived differences and just, you know, being uh, less attuned to what an IMG application looks like versus a U.S. medical application. Mm-hmm. I haven't really experienced something as overt as like, oh, we're interviewing just to interview, but we never take any of these candidates. So since you already brought that up, I guess we can discuss based on your experience and we'll go into the positive side, into the strengths, but we'll start mm-hmm. with the weaknesses of what are some of the uphill battles that an applicant has when they're an IMG? So I think one of the uphill battles is that we use, there are a lot of like like signals and applications that help us understand the relative clinical strengths or academic strengths of a given uh, person, a given potential trainee. So for example, not just having a letter from somebody who is well-known, but that letter talking about, you know, this is one of the top 10% students I've trained, or the letter saying this person has excellent clinical skills. Like there are these small kind Mm of um, phrases that we all know mean, yeah, nuances that we know mean, okay, this person is really great or the opposite. Sometimes, you know, a letter will say, this person demonstrated great improvement, but you know, they don't really say improvement (laughs) to what, right? Right, That's a red flag, right? That's a red flag. So we have those markers. And I think where IMGs, where the challenge comes in is that if the application isn't written knowing those things in mind, it can mean that we don't have those markers to look at, right? And say, oh, well, how does this compare? I can't tell. And then when you add on the um, lack of awareness or familiarity with a lot of the U.S. institutions of understanding what training looks like in any given other country. So like if you graduated medical school and finished with some, you know, maybe focus, like what does that mean in terms of how much clinical time you had? What were your opportunities for independence? You know, like did they even exist or not? Um, And so that's hard to then translate. And then I would think the third thing is that the observership letters can be really difficult because a lot of the, there's a lot of emphasis on letters that say things like, oh, like one of the strongest things that's in a medical student application is somebody saying they function at the level of an intern, right? Right. Because they're saying that they came in and they basically did the job already that you're trying to get. And Mm -hmm. so with observership letters, it's so difficult because they can be really glowing, but at the end of the day, they can't comment on the clinical ability. And so I think that that can be a challenge as well. And on the other hand, what are the strengths that some IMGs bring to the table? Oh my gosh, so many IMGs have already been practicing physicians in their home countries. So like, when you're, when they're coming in, you know, it's almost the opposite of what I just said. It's, they might have observership letters, but it doesn't matter because they've been practicing medicine for three years in their home country. And so there's a recognition that like, oh, this person understands what they're doing clinically. And that is going to be a huge strength. And so the question just simply becomes, is the translation going to be fine? Like, is there, have they demonstrated that they're able to translate 
over. And I'm, I'm saying all this recognizing that there's all sorts of biases built into everything I'm saying. So I just want to say disclaimer. I understand that right. the system is not necessarily equitable or fair, but just to ask what you're, to answer your question about the benefits, I think that's a huge one. And I experienced that myself as a resident, it was very clear that, you know, that there were, that IMGs could sometimes come in with many years of clinical experience that was very noticeable. And we could, we saw that as a strength because if you have like a busy residency, people are very clinically sick. You're not dealing with somebody who is overwhelmed at the idea of even taking clinical responsibility. They're very used to that. So I think that's a huge strength. Is there such a thing as somebody being too clinically strong? So they're going to completely fall off the edge and disrupt the program. You know, I think, um, I think that those are the kinds of things that are so easily dealt with in the application, right? So I think it's important to just be able to articulate that you are teachable. So I think that's mm-hmm. what you're getting at, right? Is that right. you want to bring in, it's great to have a lot of clinical knowledge, but you have to be able to demonstrate I'm teachable. And there's a reason why I'm seeking a residency here not just for like certification, but I'm seeking to learn something new and I'm teachable. And I think that's where the other letters and the U.S. experiences can help. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes I do meet applicants who, when they talk, it comes across that way, like I can do it, or actually I'm basically an oncologist, let let me at them, you know? And so it's like, no. Yeah, you got to be careful. People want to know that you're still teachable. Yes, that you still want, yeah, there are still things to learn. And and I would say it definitely applies to the U.S.-based students too, because you will get a U.S.-based student application, which basically sounds like they already, they feel like they already know everything, and they haven't even been clinical. And it's the same warning sign, like, okay, we don't, you have to be able to learn. And I wanted to know from you, what's your personal opinion on the role of IMGs in U.S. healthcare? I think my opinion is in evidence and like my confusion on the question, like, are you a physician? Like, do you want to help people? We need help. Like, I just, (laughs) to me, it's such a, it's so ridiculous that it would be like anything separate. And I asked that question, Kimmy, just because a lot of people whenever I'll bring that up to them, especially if it's like program directors talking, they definitely have a firm idea that, which I mean, is true that IMGs are sort of plugging the shortages in the primary care sector of U.S. healthcare. All right. And so since you brought up your background a few times, could you actually just talk to what kind of medicine you practice? Oh, yes. I'm a gynecologic oncologist. So that means that I uh, operate, I do surgery, and I give chemotherapy to people with cancers of the female reproductive tract. So ovarian, um, cervical, uterine, and vulvar cancers. Mm-hmm. And for people who are not familiar with that, please take us through all of the training that you had to do to make that possible. <laughs> to make that possible. <laughs> Let's start with the pre-medical years. Okay. So I attended a four-year U.S. college. I, I had a degree, I got a degree in biomedical engineering and a minor in chemistry. And then I went to four years of medical school. And after medical school, I did four years of OBGYN residency training. And then after that, I did what would have been three years. I extended it to four because I wanted research training for myself. So um, I did four years of a gynecologic oncology subspecialty clinical training that incorporated uh, public health research training as well. Okay. All right. Sounds easy. Quite a walk in the park. Okay, great. It's a journey. What what made all of that worth it for you? Why did you stick through that training? Here's the thing. Um, It's like, it's, it's, I think it's two concepts happening at the same time. 
One is that I was so clear, like as I went along, I became clearer and clearer on the clinical area that just really lit me up. So it's like, I got to med school and I realized, oh, I love women's health. I want to do women's health. I'm so interested in all the different aspects. I got Mm -hmm. to OBGYN residency and I realized, although I actually like most of this, this range, I really was so motivated and inspired in GYN oncology. And so when it that when the questions came like, oh, are you really going to do OBGYN? It's four years instead of three. Or are you really going to do an additional three years for guy and onc instead of just stopping? I just asked myself, what's three years compared to the rest of my life? I right. mean, it's like, yes, it's three more years, but this is, we're talking decades then of practice and fulfillment. So it's right. like, I could have temporary benefit by stopping now and maybe the first one, two, three years out as a generalist, I'm happy I'm not in training, but then after that, what happens? And what I saw around me were people who had stopped earlier than they otherwise would have, I'll just say, because of this feeling like, oh, it's been so long, I'm done. But the problem is that's not a long-term solution unless you really think that you can have all of the job satisfaction, all of the career satisfaction at whatever point you're stopping for the long-term. So for me, it just makes sense. Like it's a no brainer, three years investment for 30 years of practice makes sense to me. But the other component in terms of the investment is that my life is happening during that time. So I didn't have this feeling like- And I was gonna bring that up, but I was gonna bring that up to you, but continue. (laughs) Sorry, you know, know, your life is not on hold. It's happening. I found my husband, I mean, I, I dated, found my husband. I got married, I had my first child all during that training journey that I just discussed with you. It didn't stop during that time. So I think that's very helpful in your approach because if you keep thinking, well, I'm delaying the start of my actual life, then it does feel crazy to spend all these years delaying. But I didn't think about it that way at all. I thought like my life is happening right now. I take care of patients every day. I'm just learning as I'm going and moving up the ranks like happens in any other field. In medicine, we just have these like weird categories that make you feel like you're still a student, but you're not, you know, you're practicing, you're taking care of patients, you're learning and growing. So. Mm-hmm. And so Kimmy has a business, which we're going to talk about later, but Kimmy, I think a part of your business perhaps one day can expand to do sort of how to build your personal life while being <laughs> in medical training for years because no seriously it's a serious thing I do meet you know obviously a lot of female physicians and especially if they're IMGs and they moved without having gotten married it's it's, it's a lot like it's a new culture how do you date in the yes. culture how do you find time so then for them it can be a sort of my life is on hold and is it one fellowship or is it two fellowships you know and they're mm-hmm. literally weighing that against having children mm-hmm. or marriage so I think that's a part of the consideration for some especially women mm-hmm. I absolutely understand that a hundred percent and it's I think it's it's the default I'll just offer like it's the 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 default or the assumption is that your life is on hold and I think you have to take the, make the decision that my life is not on hold and then recognize that it is possible and find those people that have been able to do it and chat with them about it. But anyway, that's what I'll just say. I mean, it, we could talk about that for an hour, but I, it's, <laughs> it is a, it's very difficult. I mean, doable, but you know, it's not yeah, that challenging. Easy path. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about get that grant. What is that? And why did you decide to do that work? 
So Get That Grant is my strategic coaching program for women of color in academic medicine. And the goal of it is really to teach them the strategies, the tactics to secure their first, often their first, not always, research grant doing the work that they really love to do so that they learn how to build a really strong foundation for the rest of their career. And I started it, oh, I started it because I knew from my own experience and from looking at my peers that these women were bringing amazing ideas and enthusiasm and passion to the table in choosing academics. Choosing academics is a deliberate choice. You can easily go into private practice and usually make double, triple the amount of money. So you've made a conscious decision to stay in academics because mm -hmm. you have something to bring to the table in the world of research, education, et cetera. But then what okay. happens is that we get in and there are all of these pressures that show up and not a lot of guidance on how you're able to take your ideas and the passion you bring and actually create academic products like research grants papers out of that, which help you keep your, your career foundation secure and help you get promoted. So I started get that grant to fill that gap. Um, because mm -hmm. I want to see all women of color in academic medicine survive and like not just survive, but thrive and really right. be able to actualize all their great ideas. Okay. And it's amazing. Kemi's amazing. So it's, it's, <laughs> Thank <laughs> I you. know you're helping so many individuals. So for the IMG resident, you know, they matched, they packed their bags and they started their residency could you please talk with them about how they can best use their years in residency training to mm -hmm. prepare for a career in academic medicine? Well, first of all, for being chosen, I guess when it comes mm -hmm. time for any subspecialty training, and then mm -hmm. later on succeeding, what are some of the things that if they do it now, they'll benefit from it later on? So I think one of the things that may sound obvious, but I'm just going to say it out loud, is that your primary job in residency training is to learn and excel clinically. Like, so your primary job is to learn the clinical thing that you came to learn how to do and to be able to practice and then execute and become expert in that area. And literally everything else comes second. And so sometimes with the focus on wanting to do subspecialty or the focus on academics or really anything else, I see trainees can get caught up in all the extracurriculars and think that the clinical part is just happening by default because they're showing up to work every day. But by far, more than anything else, what's going to have you have the support of your program for whatever you want to do next, getting an academic job straight out or doing fellowship is being clinically excellent. After that, after that's happening, after you can see that you're learning, after you can see that that is happening, then everything else follows. And so then my next step, my next piece of advice would be to really think and identify what kind of academic career do you want? Because just like almost in everything, there's lots of different flavors. And it's important to think about that, not from the perspective of the resident, but from the perspective of the faculty member, because residents will say, well, oh, I love Dr. Jones. She's so great. She teaches us all the time. She's here. She's great. I want to be just like her. And I'll say, okay, so are, just to be clear, so do you, you want to be here every day teaching residents most of the time, responding to text messages? <laughs> da, da, da. Like, are you like, if, and that's fine if you're like, oh yeah, that's perfect. But if you, that's not actually what you want to do, then you cannot fashion your job after Dr. Jones, because you might like her as a resident, but is that the, is that the actual faculty role you want to hold? So that you have, there has to be this process where you can identify, actually, this is the kind of faculty role I want to hold, which might have less 
interaction with residents, which is fine. And then from that place, you can think about what are the skills that that person is bringing to the table? Is it research? Is it programming? Is it leadership? Is it education? And how can you be exposed to those kind of skills? How can you be exposed to research? How can you be exposed to maybe doing curricular work? That kind of thing. So that you start to practice and get some experience in these non-clinical areas of academics that interest you. All right. So I think that those are, to me, those are the two things. And then the third I would add is <laughs> recognizing, okay, that as a trainee, there is a clear power dynamic between you and your attendings and the program director and all of that. And so when you are thinking about where you want to go, when you are talking about what you might want to do, you need to understand that these are the same people who are evaluating you. And two, they, there's going to be a baked in level of conflict of interest, right? Because their, their interest has to be the institution. Their interest has to be potentially, if they really like you, keeping you as opposed to having you go somewhere else. And one of the mistakes that I sometimes see trainees make is not recognizing, right, that Yes, you're a trainee and people are here to teach you, but sometimes it might behoove you to get career advice outside of the direct, the people who directly supervise you clinically or your program director, because they can have a, a narrow view of you. And they may also have other reasons for why they're recommending A, B, and C that have to do with potentially the institution or the division. And so it's helpful to cultivate relationships with attendings that are outside of your direct clinical area. So you can right. get different mentorship around where you want to go. I think that's, yeah, that's so true and powerful. And I think just recognizing and not being offended by the fact that people who have these positions, they have a certain kind of loyalty to the institution in one sense, but oftentimes to the actual geographic area, especially if they're from yes. the area, like there's certain needs <laughs> that they want filled. So they're grooming you to fill those needs. So they're giving you the best possible mentorship and advice, but so that you can you know, come and fill these roles. Exactly. Yes. And I love how you said it's like not taking it personally. It's, I mean, imagine if you assumed a leadership role in an institution, they expect you to represent the institution. The institution. I mean, that's so, yeah. So it's just, it's just being aware of those kinds of things I think is important. Yeah. So I'm actually curious, connected to that, what about when people take let's say, for instance, fellowship opportunities just because they're great or they're excellent, but they know for a fact that they're not necessarily wedded to staying in that geographic area, how do they still cultivate a close relationship with a mentor who might be pushing them to stay in that area? Yeah, so one, it's recognizing that if you take a fellowship position and you are, you're great at it, you love it, you're great at it, there is a 99.9% .9 chance that everybody there will want you to stay. So okay. for, so literally just recognizing that that's normal because you're great. They groomed you, they trained you, they want you to say, and also recognizing that you don't owe them anything, mm. right? So, so their job is to train you in the subspecialty, in the field and produce a gynecologic oncologist or produce a urologist, produce an oncologist. That is their job. Your thanks for them is showing up every day, doing the work, taking care of the patients and learning. That's your thanks. After that, it's your choice what you want to do. So they are going to try to influence that choice because if they like you, they want you to stay. But you don't have to stay as a gratitude payback for the training you received. That was part of the original 
agreement. So right. what I tell people is one, recognize that the fact that they want you to stay and might be pressuring you to stay is literally a normal feature of academia. Two, this is where the cultivated relationships that you've built up outside of the end of, of your particular program are critical because uh-huh. then you can go to those people and say, okay, I'm actually considering this and I'm considering staying, but I also want to specifically consider these others. And those people can help you kind of navigate that. Right. And I would say the third thing is that there is a, you know, you get into some specificity, but there are definitely, there's a way to be professional about saying, I am looking at a lot of opportunities, including this one. And you can say the truth, which is that I could definitely see myself staying here, but I want to look at other opportunities. And it might be that when you do, you could see yourself staying somewhere, going somewhere else too. So I had that exact same scenario where, you know, I had trained in a place, they really liked me, they really wanted me to stay. And I recognized, well, I really want to look around too. And I had to kind of balance those two things. And it can be, it wasn't, I'll say it wasn't fun. Like it was difficult because I felt like I had to, I owed it to myself to look around to make sure that I was getting the job that I really worked so hard to get. You talked about how many years of training it was, but at the same time, be respectful and professional because I wanted these relationships to continue. And basically I'll offer that I was always clear about that and about wanting to look around. I never, ever, don't ever do this, made a verbal promise like just to get, stop the conversation. People be like, of course, okay, I'm going to stay. I'm going to stay. Like, we'll work it out, but I'm going to stay. And they don't, they don't really mean it. They like want more time. Don't, I never said that. And then thirdly, I really, I got good advice from a couple people outside who were able to help me kind of balance the pressure with the opportunity. And I did end up taking another opportunity. And because I was strategic and clear about asking for startup funds and things like that, I was able to come back and say, thank you so much. But this opportunity at this other institution just really is going to fit better with what I want to do and also with the rest of my life. So I'm really excited to keep our relationship going, but I'm going to go. And we have a great relationship. I mean, I just literally submitted a grant with some, some of my old attendings from my fellowship training program this year. So it's definitely possible. That's the other thing. Yeah. And I'm glad that you covered that because I think learning how to say no and maintain a relationship is definitely a career skill. So I'm glad yes. you brought that up. <laughs> Critical. <laughs> All right. So my next question to you was, what do you do for fun? Oh, for fun. Okay. So I really like, um, so I love to read. Um, mm-hmm. So I really like sci-fi and like fantasy novels. Those are super fun for me. And in the same way, like, I don't, I don't watch a lot of TV at all because I do not have time. I don't know how people have time to watch TV. I have no time. <laughs> However, when I do like on vacation time or whatever, then I also like to watch like uh, Marvel movies, Star Wars, you know, like fun stuff like that. And then I do yoga, uh, which is both fun and like critical for me to continue to show up every day with a smile on my face, basically. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Thank you. All right, Kimmy, so now I'm going to ask you 60 seconds of one question. Okay. And so the idea behind this is that you don't think too much, you just answer the first thing that comes to your mind. I'm ready. On any given day, clinical care or research? Oh, impossible. (laughs) I, I guess... Uh, I guess probably research. I'm 75% research. So I guess on any given day, research or teaching (laughs) research. What is the last picture in your phone? Oh, my last picture was a screenshot of an inspirational 
quote that I found online. Jeans or dress pants? Jeans. Star Trek or Star Wars? Hmm. Star Trek. Heels or flats? Girl. Heels only because I have plantar fasciitis and I can't wear flats. Favorite mentor? Hmm. Probably Paula Gehrig at the University of North Carolina. Favorite mommy moment? Mm. Gosh, all the nursing moments. Proudest moment in academic medicine? Oh, that's so hard. I think um, the conference that I had with the nonprofit I started from a grant called ECANA, which is the Endometrial Cancer Action Network for African Americans. And last one, who, dead or alive, would you most want to meet? I know I'm not supposed to think hard, but this is like impossible. Okay, fine. Malcolm X. Malcolm Malcolm X. X. And what would you ask them? What was your guiding light? Thank you. All right. So you've been through a lot of schooling. So my Mm -hmm. question to you and a lot of work, right? And now you're bringing others along. My question to you is why is it so important to you to mentor other women in academic medicine? Because I really feel that I really feel like it's part of my purpose. It's part, part of my purpose was to have this experience. I feel like I innately understood some of these levers of power and strategy and how they're all working. And I went through my own pain of figuring it all out and moving from thinking there was something wrong with me to recognizing that I could work within the system to get what I wanted to get out of it. And so I feel and know that I went through all of that so that I could turn around and mentor and teach others. And also because community is so important to me, and I think it's really important to all of us as humans. And the statistics are very clear about women of color in medicine and black women in particular. And we're not ever going to have more numbers and a community that feels nourishing and protective and all of that if I can't, you know, if if we can't do the kind of community building among ourselves that we need to do. So I see this as also building community for myself and for the future women that show up. And so overall, when you think of the career of Dr. Kemi Dole, what do you want the legacy of your career to be? That's so interesting. I think the first thing that came to my mind is nothing is wasted, which Mm. is that I feel so, it's almost like what I just said, but I I want every motion, every action I take, whether it turns out the way I wanted to or not, to be helpful and meaningful to one or many folks. And from a very specific standpoint in terms of my research, I want to have changed the narrative and thus the reality of Black women and gynecologic health in the United States. All right. (laughs) Thank you. Nice and sweet. So I know that you've probably thought about that a lot. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us today. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, and I'm sure that our IMG listeners and others will get a lot of value from your insight. So thank you so much, Kimmy. Mm, I hope so. Thank you. Take care, everybody. Take care. All right. Thank you for tuning in to the IMG Residency Match podcast. To learn more about how you can match into your dream residency, even if right now you don't know where to start, go watch a free training brought to you by the IMG Residency Match Application Accelerator at imgresidencymatch.com. By the end of the training, you'll know how to create an application that communicates to programs why they need to invite you to interview and rank you highly so you can match. Now, don't forget to share this podcast with at least one colleague you know applying to the match so you can celebrate together on match day. And be sure to rate and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, 
Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. And now we close with a word of inspiration from me, your host, Shauna Kay. When in doubt about your next step, choose the path that gives you more options. Oh, 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 o